Stephen J. Golds was born in North London and has lived much of his life in Japan. He is the acclaimed noir writer of the Dead, the Dying, and the Gone series, now available in stunning new editions from Punk Noir Press. These noir novels are Say Goodbye When I'm Gone, Always the Dead, and I'll Pray When I'm Dying. And they feature new introductions by best-selling writers Will Carver, Dom Nolan, and Sarah Moorhead. Like these writers, I see Golds as a modern noir writer who deserves a much bigger readership. In addition to being a poet and crime writer, Golds is influenced by transgressive fiction and dirty realism. His latest novel, Shadows, Slow Dancing in Derelict Rooms, was published this past July by Outcast Press. Stephen is also well known in the crime writing community as editor-in-chief of Punk Noir Magazine. Stephen, welcome uh, to Roughneck Dispatch all the way from Japan. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on your show, Matt. And uh, thank you for the awesome introduction. I couldn't have done it better myself. That was better than I could have done. So cheers. Thank you for that. <laughs> so I didn't get anything wrong. No, no, it was awesome. Thank you. I want to talk about the recent novel from Outcast Press. Um, we will talk a bit about the second edition of the, the noir series and hopefully Punk Noir Press and Punk Noir Magazine. But let's just get started with Shadow Slow Dancing in Derelict Rooms. Read the novel this past week. Loved it. Uh, I left a review and I feel like, you know, my blurb would say I felt like it was, I was in sort of a fever dream. I think there's a lot of urgency in the prose, a lot of um, real deep emotion. Um, I feel like the book is sort of a literary represent, representation of what I call a love addiction. Um, I'm curious, how would you describe the book in a couple sentences? And, um, you know, if you were trying to sell it to a reader right now, I guess, uh, to put it as bluntly as I could, it's kind of a, a fucked up love story is what I was aiming for. Um, there's so many love stories. If you go into the bookshop, you can pick up any any kind of romance or, or love story. But I wanted to write something that was a little bit more realistic. I wanted to write a story that was about that one toxic relationship, or maybe, if you're unlucky, one or two, merging two or three toxic relationships together into one narrative. And... Um, I wanted to show an unreliable narrator. Um, you know, you're always the good guy in your own story, but for someone else, you're the bad guy. I wanted to kind of reflect that in the novel. But also I wanted to kind of pay homage to Sarah Kane, who, who was a writer who influenced, you know, who, who has influenced my writing from the beginning, especially uh, she wrote a play called Psychosis 448. And um, it was basically her suicide note. Uh, she wrote it before taking her own life. And um, there was so much beauty and, uh, you know, beautiful and ugly truths within her writing. That was something that I wanted to kind of uh, see if I could do it myself and kind of wear my heart on my sleeve and just kind of write something that was real, a love story that I felt was real. Right. Yeah. 
Well, that's good to know that background because I think, um, you know, Outcast Press publishes what they call transgressive mm-hmm. fiction. And I think for me, this novel, you know, the opening line is uh, the narrative of an eight-year-old boy mm-hmm. uh, t- talking about, if I have that right, about his first suicide mm-hmm. attempt. And so I appreciate you bringing that up because I feel as if um, that topic, it shouldn't be a taboo topic mm-hmm. because it's so important to discuss mm-hmm. But it is a taboo topic, especially in literature. And I'm wondering if that was another piece of your motivation, talking about Sarah Kane and, and her life, but also just the topic itself being almost, yeah, I would say a taboo topic in, in modern crime lit. Is that, is that a thing or am I, am I missing the mark? Definitely. Um, so much so when Outcast actually um, screenshot and put up the first few pages quite a few people actually unfollowed me um which surprised me uh, i can only assume it was because you know they were offended by the first page or maybe it's for another reason i really don't know but um you know i think it's uh, you know the idea of suicide is very shocking but I think it's something that desperately needs to be talked about now as, um, you know, especially among young men, it seems to be, you know, an epidemic somewhat at the moment. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I kind of feel every single person has maybe come to a very dark point in their life you know, at some time. Um, and I think, you know, some people, you know, are lucky to have some people there to help them and some people don't. Um, actually, the first, uh, that actual story about the eight-year-old, it was actually uh, myself when I was a kid. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. so I, I wrote about it as well. I wrote about it in a short story and I wrote about it in some poetry. Um as you know it's i don't know it's been i've written about that kind of depression quite extensively i think in my poetry but it was something that i wanted to put into novel format but um i think it's easier to express within within poetry definitely but um you know i think mental health has been something that i've always struggled with somewhat and recently maybe the last maybe the last two, three years, I've finally kind of got on top of it somewhat, but it's always been something that I've, that I've battled with. And I'd like to think it's something that I've managed to put past myself, you know, but I think even though I don't talk too much about education within the novel, because that wasn't the primary focus, but I think there should be more there should be more talk about it. But uh, it's funny. What last time I was back in London, a, a friend talked to me about, you know, even down the bar, talking in the bar. A couple of my friends were talking about how during the COVID nineteen lockdowns, they were having mental problems, and even in a kind of a man group, that seems kind of taboo to talk about down the pub, which is, you know, it's right. a, a dead shame, really, and it's something I feel like we're gradually you know, coming out of, 
but um, I'm not quite sure. But I think it's something that definitely needs to be discussed more and where better to discuss taboo topics in, in literature. Right. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I think two things pop out to me, which is that you have a book with a admittedly difficult but necessary topic of the literary arts and you see people outright sort of um, denying it as a piece of art. Uh, and whether that's, you know, just by unfollowing someone on social media or, you know, I've had a similar case where I have a short story that's a, that's similar mm -hmm. and it's been rejected multiple times. And that is the reason because it has that as the sort of the central mm -hmm. tenet suicide. Um, so I know somewhat what you mean, but, um, the other piece I wanted to ask about is I'm really glad that you brought up poetry versus prose because you know, in poetry, I think there's a really noted tradition of speaking about um, mental illness, you know, in poetic logic. Mm -hmm. And there's many poets who we know have, I mean, in, in, in the States, we talk about Sylvia Plath mm -hmm. a lot, mm -hmm. of course, um, as well as others. Um, and so this book, Shadow Slow Dancing, I'm just going to shorten the title for, for the yeah. sake of the podcast, uh, is... It was interesting to me because the narration, the prose and the narration, and you talk about the unreliable narrator piece, which this is where it becomes really interesting, is the prose and narration felt so personal to me. Mm -hmm. And it felt like I was reading a memoir, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not surprised to hear you say some of this was close to you and your personal lived experience, but how did you do that in a in a you know, in in a seemingly fictional piece of literature from a prose style standpoint, how did you approach that? Did you approach it like a poet from language and rhythm or was it plot based or situational? I'm curious. Mm, basically, um, it's really a conglomerate of different stories merged into one, which I had within my mind for a very long time. Um, it was actually written when I was, probably, you know, at one of my, one of my lowest points as were all of everything that's been, everything uh. that's been published so far was when I was going through my own struggles. But, um, there's two things that I wanted to do. Um, well, basically with the novel, I wanted to 100% write a, a poem. I wanted it to be a poem, but I wanted it to be a poem in the novel format and since I've started writing, the one the one agreement that I've made with myself is to be unashamedly honest in everything that I write, you know, and try to try to put real life into these fictional situations um, as much as I can to make it relatable or perhaps unrelatable in some cases, but uh, try to make it as real as possible by using real life feelings. And I feel mental health or that, that kind of darkness that a lot of people have, it really belongs to, you know, the not genre, I think. Um, right. What better, 
what better topic really than mental health to be the topic of Noah? And I think it's been something that's for maybe the last what, 80 years or 70 years or however long, I guess, for a long time, mental health hasn't been talked about. So I think it's time for those stories to come forth within perhaps the crime genre. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think there are a lot of novels and stories that clearly feature those who have psychopathic tendencies mm-hmm. or, um, I mean, a lot of villains, right? So, um, I think for instance of Jim Thompson's work, the killer inside mm-hmm. me, um, is, an, I mean, he has many works where this is, where this is the issue. Um, but I think you're right. I think that slow shadow, slow dancing is a, a, a much more, um, nuanced approach to this in the sense of the main character, Vincent, we, we, we want him as readers to succeed. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, we want to see him get better, I think. And so, you know, he keeps talking about being in limbo and he compares that to the cat, you know, the Catholic idea of purgatory mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and he's in a, you know, a mental health facility, which doesn't give away anything in the book, but, um, it's, it's, it's one of these things where you've done it in such a way that it's, it's really not hitting us over the head, right? With it, it's saying, here's a person. And so he becomes so real and flesh and bone to us as readers. I think you've done an incredible job doing that as opposed to the, and I love Jim Thompson, his work. I mean, he's a big influence on me, but like there's sort of this, I, this, this, uh, the conceit there is like, oh, this person's a madman, mm-hmm. and what's he going to do? And that's the conceit. I think in, in your novel, the conceit is much different without giving anything away. And then you talk about uh, writing it as a poem. I, I love that because as someone who studied poetry pretty extensively myself, um, I always think of poems as, and tell me where I'm wrong here or what your ideas are, but every poem has its own logic. Mm-hmm. And so what's really interesting about that is I can write a poem where um, I'm speaking for my, my, uh, my sister and yet I don't have a sister or I'm speaking to my sister, but I do in the poem and don't, mm-hmm. or, or vice versa, or something can happen in the poem that doesn't make sense in the logical dimension that we're in, but it does in this dimension of the poem. Um, and this happens in your novel. You talk about the unreliable narrator piece and without giving it anything away. I'm curious from your studies in poetry, does that make sense to you as a an analytical look at things that every poem has its own logic and that can also be transferred to story? Yeah, I think uh, each poem is really, it's probably going to sound a little bit corny, but uh, I think each poem is a painting uh, by a, a painter and each person is going to put their own stroke of the brush on the canvas and everyone does it differently but each each painting is a reflection of perhaps the mental state of the painter if you look at you know the the later works of van gogh or someone like that i think it's a good representation and i think uh, poetry because there's so many different styles of poetry and uh 
So I think it most closely relates to how the painter sees themselves or how they see the world. And that's why with poems, sometimes you can get them where they don't actually make sense, but they do within the mind of someone that's put that out there. For example, here's one good example. Uh, if if you've got perhaps OCD or if you've got uh, uh, if you've got depression or bipolar, and you read the work of someone of bipolar, it could be that they've written a, a poem about uh, a vase full of flowers. You can know that they've got mental health problems by the way that they're describing certain things. So that there's that kind of communication through through art, um, right? Which is I don't know if that answers your question very well, but uh, I wasn't looking really to communicate anything too strongly, but I wanted to paint a picture that confused the reader, where they weren't really sure. I wanted it to be quite jarring. Um, this idea of jumping back through time and what's real and what's not and because the whole the whole yeah. novel is really about self delusion really ah. and uh, uh-huh. how we delude ourselves and i think everyone may not have mental health problems but i think everyone deludes himself uh, you know to some degree every day um <laughs> I agree yeah that. so yes. Uh, that's that's partly what I wanted to kind of communicate. Yeah, yeah, I, and you've really hit on that. And I mean, at some point in the novel, we see the parents arrive, mm-hmm. and and this is when, for me as a reader, there was that that moment where I felt that ah, this is delusion and self delusion, and. And, and also, it's a piece I thought you captured really well in a very concise way was the frustration uh, uh, or hopelessness on the part of the parents in this case. Um, I thought with a very minimal bit of dialogue and scenery, a couple scenes and chapters, you captured that. And I know I personally experienced that in my life. So it's interesting that hopelessness that you've been able to capture. So it's not just the person undergoing these challenges, Mm -hmm. but those around them who are Mm -hmm. there to support or who are trying to, if they're lucky enough to have that. So, yeah, I, I, I'm curious about, was that, were those pieces hard to write for you? Um, again, not really. I think, uh, living with someone, living with someone with mental health can be just as, a torturous as actually living yourself with mental health. Um, Ah. mm, So I think um, you know, I I think uh, I I live what I write and I write what I live and then the stuff that I can't write about from my heart, I tend to heavily research but uh, this wasn't really a book I had to research at all. Um, mm. But um, not just that. This was me. I wanted to kind of 
flex my my writing muscles a little bit um okay um this was my attempt at uh how do i say this is kind of my attempt at uh writing with flair showing what i could do because everything everything oh. that i'm trying to write i'm trying to push myself to kind of try a different skill for example yeah um a few a few short stories ago i wrote a trilogy of um of short stories written in the southern you know in the in the voice of someone from the american south uh, which was something that i wanted oh. to do or you know i wanted to write something more lavender prose or purple prose or whatever it's called i wanted to write something really flair where my novels have been my other novels the noir novels have been quite pared down they've been very descriptive or i've put elements of poetry into it and elements of rhythm but this is um this outcast press book uh, shadows dancing was really my attempt at art high art in a in a book i guess you could say hmm. yeah i would say that comes across in multiple areas and i think you've accomplished it um i still though see you as a noirist when it comes to to writing so and now i, I haven't had the opportunity to read much of your poetry so i don't know that that could change my mind but um i'm glad i, I think i'm also glad that you mentioned noir as a place for discussions around mental health and mental illness so um, yeah, it's just, it's a really interesting confluence of characters, situational context and issues. And then with, yeah, with your, you know, pro style, call it flair. If you, if you want, I think that makes sense. Um, then let me ask you this about the writing of it. You said it was pretty easy in the sense that you didn't have to research it. How fast do you write a book? of this length. It's about 200 pages, a little bit shorter. So what is that? I'm guessing 50 to 60,000 words. It's about that. I think this one was about maybe about 60, 65,000 words, something like that. <laughs> wow. It reads much shorter in mm -hmm. the sense of, I mean, I read this book fast. I, I actually read it. In oh, thank you. Um, so 65,000 words. So yeah. How fast do you write a book? I mean, from, from just a, a working standpoint. Well, I'm a, maybe three quarters of the way through the the current novel that i'm writing the japanese crime novel i started mid-september and last night i reached about sixty-two thousand words so I, I don't know wow so that's two months yeah so two and a half months. um i tend to I write quite quickly but it's kind of in spurts so i'll write flat out for one week i write like something like twenty thousand words in one week and then there'll be maybe a week where I write 1000 words. And then again, there'll be a massive, massive dump of words the next week. And then the next two weeks, there'll be nothing. So I don't know, I kind of, I've kind of write when I, when I have the opportunity, I've been waking up at five o'clock in the morning, or I've been going to bed late. Or, you know, because I got to work, but um, I'll spend time with the kids and whatnot. But yeah, I try to write when I can, as much as I can, 
if I feel like it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you write in such spurts. I'm a little more consistent. Everybody has their own style and their own mm -hmm. method. Um, now I am curious as someone who studied poetry myself and hasn't, I find it really hard to jump between. So I find it really hard to jump between as a writer, between poetry and especially crime fiction writing, noir writing. Um, I mean, I'm, I read mostly exclusively noir mm -hmm. for fiction because that's just what I love. I, I read some horror as well, but, um, poetry, I'm always picking up. I'm always reading a poem or two a day, maybe more. Um, I find places for it. Um, but, and, and it does influence my writing on a daily basis, mm -hmm. but I'm curious about you. How, what about the poetry piece? from a craftsmanship standpoint? Well, that's very much different. For, for example, if I'm writing prose, um, I'll actually redraft as I go. So I'm what, at 60, sure. 65,000 words now, but all of the chapters have been redrafted maybe two or three times. So once I get out of the rhythm, I redraft to get myself back in the rhythm, if you know what I mean. Whereas the poetry sure. is I'll write it once, I'll write it once, I'll put it away, I'll get it out again, I'll tinker with it just slightly, just once, and then that's it. And then it, it'll go out. Because I feel like uh, some with poetry, I want to keep it a little bit more rougher. I want to keep it in the original the original feeling that it was written, written in. Um, so I felt sure. like this, I wrote the poem, and then I'm trying to capture that feeling within the poem. Um, whereas with my prose, it's much more, you know, clean, tidier. Um, you know, I'm thinking about the words, which words are best to use and the sentence structure, but with poetry, I tend to think of it maybe quite contrarian to how I should be writing it in the proper forms. Uh, for me, I tend to write a very short, maybe one stanza or two stanzas and then with, you know, a killer, a killer punchline and then that's it. So, mm, sure. It's more of a modern history. So who, yeah. 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 More of a free verse, but more of like a modernist approach mm -hmm. to it. What, um, I'm curious, who are some poets that have influenced you over your life as a writer? Well, definitely. Um, you know, um, Charles Bukowski was probably, one of the first poets that I, that I, that I read. Um, I got Yeats. I'm a big Yeats fan. I've got lots of Yeats tattoos as well. The, the Irish ah. poet. Um, probably Bukowski and Yeats were the two, the two poets that I first read that really spoke to me. Yeah. And then after that, I kind of moved on to, you know, Sylvia Plath, Dan Fante, um, Tony O'Neill, was um he's a an indie writer um that wrote quite extensively about uh, heroin addiction in london and in california and uh, he inspired a lot of my earlier work um you know um, he got a big book deal but I, you know i haven't heard too much from him recently i hope he's okay but yeah him and dan fante was a, uh, were a huge influence in the beginning and they're both especially very free free based 
And then yeah. uh, the lyrics of Kurt Cobain were a massive inspiration sure. for me. Tupac Shakur was a, a big inspiration. You know, so not just within poetry or literature, I, I also look towards, you know, the lyrics of, you know, someone like Pete Doherty from the Libertines, you know, or uh, mm -hmm. Billy Corgan from the Smashing Smashing Pumpkins. I feel a lot of a lot of songs are basically poems to to music, right? Yeah, sure. so they were massive inspirations to me as well. Yeah, it's funny you bring up some of these also influences on me. Of course, Bukowski. Um, sort of interesting. I did an American MFA program, and um, you know, Bukowski was conspicuously absent from mm. any of the curriculum. Mm. <laughs> And I find that really interesting. I think it speaks to where we're at as a society in America, mm -hmm. at least. But, um, you know, a poet who, and a fantastic novelist actually, but uh, a poet who, um, you know, influenced so many millions of writers, I'm sure. Um, oh, Raymond Carver as well was a massive influence. Yeah. Uh, poetry are also prose or oh, both? Both, Just, both. Mm. And uh, oh, Richard yeah. Broutskin as yeah, well. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I um, gosh, I have a couple, a uh, one volume of Carver's poetry, and read it a lot as a teenager, actually, because it's one something we had in our high school library. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but I want to go back to Smashing Pumpkins and Billy Corgan. Um, you know, the album Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the double album from the nineties was such a huge influence on me as a teenager, but also I think as a writer, because Billy had a book of lyrics that came with that double mm. CD for anybody who purchased it. And I don't know if you had it, but I still have it here. Oh wow! And, um, it's quite, it was like illustrated and, and with some of the illustrations and it was really influential because you could follow along and memorize the poems and, you know, the song lyrics, of course. But I think there's real value in memorizing poetry, whether it's song or not. So I'm really that's really interesting to, to hear that from you. Um, now, did you grow up in the UK? As yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, yeah. No plan. Okay. And still that music. Yeah. Nirvana and, and Smashing Pumpkins, et cetera, were still very, quite popular there as well. Ooh, I think when I was growing up, where I grew up, I think hip hop was uh, when I was in high school sure. or junior high, it was definitely, you know, Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls were, you know, yeah. Black Street. It was, there was much more of a, a culture of uh, hip hop. So really, I think hip hop and probably, I guess, what's, what's it called? Grunge, grunge metal, like Linkin Park and sure. stuff like that when I was younger. And then once I got to high school, you know, uh, I really locked into, you know, people like the Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana and uh, those kind of groups yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, we're still talking about Nirvana. I saw an interview recently with Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic and um, just to hear them speak about <laughs> his work as an artist and how he worked as a musician is really, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, such a, a generational 
talent and interesting person and great musician. But Which we're sadly, yeah, sadly lacking a, nowadays, I feel. Um, I do feel that as well. I mean, I don't feel like we have... <clears throat> is there anybody speaking for <laughs> the youth? Yeah, yeah. I don't think... Or well, what is the youth talking about? I, I guess looking at TikTok. I don't know. I, I could talk yeah. for hours about that, but... There, there are some musicians, you know, of course, doing great work, but yeah, I'm the same. I, and I, I always wonder about poetry. I mean, uh, the thing about someone like Tupac is he was sort of the same as like he, he modeled himself as a mm-hmm. right. Yeah, I had his book of poems when I was growing up. The, the rose yeah, that grew course. from concrete, right? That grew from concrete. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, 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 of course. <clears throat> yeah, of course. And that, that was, I think like Bukowski in a lot of instances is that it's approachable poetry. Mm. It's not the type of poetry that you're, makes you feel like you need to know, you need to have a university degree to decipher mm. it, you know, and that's the real power of it. Does it so, speak to you? So I think yeah. it's the power of noir as well. But anyway, yeah, 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 it speaks to you. But, um, well, I think with Shadows Dance, Slow Dancing, Shadows Slow Dancing and Derelict Rooms from Outcast Press, I feel as if... You know, you've really captured something. I think what I like about the book, it is quite different from any other books I've read um, in that vein. And I think it's a true piece of art. Oh, so thank you. Thank you for writing it and 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 talking about it. Let's jump to, and by the way, I will post links, et cetera, for where people can purchase this book. Oh, thank um, you. And that'll all be in, in, the, in, the, in the send out of the podcast. But... Um, let's talk a bit about your noir series. Um, originally published, I believe, starting in 2020. Is that correct? Yeah. So a, the yeah. first one was originally published by Close to the Bone, Always the Dead. Sure. And then um, I was picked up by Red Dog Press. And then yep. they basically published the first of the series, the trilogy. Um so they picked out, but unfortunately, as happens on the indie scene, uh, they went out of business, you know, like uh, in August, it's kind of a situation that I, I felt was happening or going to happen for a while. Um, and then luckily, I have a, a writer friend who's a genius with marketing and computers and stuff like that, because I'm pretty much computer illiterate. But um, they contacted me and they were like, you know, put your own stuff out. And I was like, oh, I can't do it. You know, I just can't do it. I haven't got the first idea. I can basically, I can use the internet and open up word. That's all I can do. And they were like, uh-huh. let's, uh, let's build punk noir into something that it should be, you know? So we got together, put our heads together. We planned and, um, they worked their magic on, a. Uh, on the formatting and I re-edited the novels. We got extra content. We got uh, some new blurbs and then we thought, okay, let's, uh, let's come around again. You know, the second coming. Sure. So I'm curious about that. Uh, I read the novels back. I think the latest one was published. Was it as late as 2023? Was, no, that was, it was 2021. It was 2021 was the last one. Yeah. Yeah. Because as I was doing research for this interview, I'm like, man, that was so long I read that. Um, 
when you say new content, new new pieces, are you talking about substantial edits or introductions? Or uh, the there's been no substantial edits, okay? Because I wanted to keep the the novels as they were, but we've got yeah. Uh, there's uh, some new introductions to each piece um, by Dom Nolan, Sarah Moorhead, and Will Carver. They've each very kindly yeah. done great introductions to the works. And um, we've tried to put some extra content in at the end, like, uh, for example, okay. Lit Reactor's interview with Gabriel Hart. Luckily, they sure. gifted. So I wanted to keep that in print because that was an awesome interview. So, you know, that, that went in there as well, for example, just one example. Yeah, another casualty, I think, of the indie lit scene is Lit Reactor recently. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, is a big loss. And it's going to keep happening, I've though. I've read a lot of Gabe. Yeah, I'm afraid of that. I've read a lot of Gabriel's interviews and have been really mm. um, thankful for that work he's done. Uh, you say it's going to keep happening. I'm curious what your view is. By the way, actually, before we get to that, we should say the novels are reissued, second edition, new covers, new art additional content, but the great introductions uh, available in all the usual places you can buy books. Again, those links will be included as well. But um, I'm curious on your thoughts. You've been around the indie scene now for quite a while. You're editor-in-chief of Punk Noir. Um, You've been through close to the bone, uh, moving from one to the other to Red Dog, and then Red Dog, you know, unfortunately closing. And taking a number of books, not taking books. I mean, I know they gave reversals of rights, right? But those books are not in print right now. Um, I'm curious on your thoughts on the indie scene. Where are we headed? Where are we now? What are some of the pain points? Um, Wow. I could talk about this for a long time. Um, It's fragile. I think it's very fragile. Um, I think if you're going to be a writer, if you want to be a writer, if someone's listening to this and they've never written anything and they want to be a writer... I 100% believe you have to cut your teeth on the indie scene. Uh, You know, you've got to have respect to everyone on the indie scene. If you're writing on the indie scene, you're getting short stories published. You're a writer of talent, I believe. I think uh, pretty much everyone that I know, everyone that I've seen on the indie scene is a talented writer. There are no bad writers on the indie scene that I've seen. Everyone's good. Sure. Um, whether I like them personally or not, everyone is a good writer. They're getting stuff published. People are reading your work. You're a talented writer. But um, I think that um, it's a place where you have to, you know, earn your stripes. But I think it's a very fragile environment. I think it's a lot more tribalistic than I thought it would be, which mm-hmm. I've tried to stay away from as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it can be quite fickle. I think people change on a dime, um, Mm. which it shouldn't even be. I just really wish everyone, you know, everyone got along, which I know sounds corny, right? But if (laughs) only, right? But unfortunately as well, talking from a business angle, you know, the support's just not there. You know, I think there's a lot of great presses, but I was completely blown away how much money how much work has to go into actually putting a book out. It's crazy. You yeah. know, when I, I, I had yeah. no idea, I had no idea the amount of the absolute work that goes into it. And I'm only putting out a reissue, 
Do you know what I mean? So a lot of work goes into every book that's put out and a lot of money goes into putting books out. So um, I think, I think that it can be, you can ride the wave of success. You have a great couple of great books as a publisher and then perhaps the kind of steam burns off somewhat and then you're kind of slipping into the red and each time it gets a little bit more difficult and then doesn't work. So I'm not sure, you know, I've only been on the indie scene for three years. I think, I think it's about three and a half years since, since January, 2020, I think I joined and um, Mm. so many presses have gone, you know, how, how many crime publishers are there nowadays? There's not a lot, you know, and there's not a lot of magazines. It's really thinning down, you know, so I don't know. Luckily, there's a lot of great presses coming coming out right now. Um, a lot of new presses started up for poetry and for the, the crime scene. So I think it's, um, you know, I think it will rising and falling as it goes along. And I think, uh, you know, it will find its own level, hopefully in the end sure what do you think about it yeah Uh, well i think very much what you said about can't we all just get along but i think um you know i think that the business piece is really really difficult i mean in your reissues you probably didn't have to employ an editor because it was already professionally yeah yeah so you're just kind of designing the book but typesetting costs money the isbn Uh, even costs money i didn't know that Sure. Yeah. The, all that stuff costs, uh, quite a bit when you add it up. And then of course you have the marketing piece, which I think that's where a lot of the indie presses run into trouble is, you know, just the money to get a book released in the proper way. Then you're looking at marketing and you're going, wow, we've sunk too much into this already. We can't afford to market. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think, you know, on the indie scene, one of my biggest frustrations has been, Trade publications like um, Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, these places outright ignoring independent literature that is better than a lot of the commercial stuff. And so I don't know how to make inroads there. Otherwise, I would have. Um, I suspect it's a personal relationship piece or a advertising purchase piece. So how much advertising do you do with us mm-hmm. when the answer is mm-hmm. none? Your book probably doesn't get reviewed or we don't look at your books. So um, that's my biggest piece. But, you know, I do feel irrespective of some presses closing that, you know, readers are open to books published by small presses, by independent writers, and they have found great stuff. Um, and so we just need to take keep taking it to the people and get in front of people um, and say, read my book. I mean, I just sold a book to a bartender the other day that I bought a beer from. It's like, nice. That's a good sale. Hey, look, it's on sale on Kindle. And it's like, oh yeah, I read. Okay, cool. Open up your phone and please click buy. (laughs) And you know, (laughs) seriously, if I, if I lived in London, if I lived in London, if I lived in America, I swear Mm. I would be selling books out of the trunk of my car outside the train station. The only reason I can't is because, you know, I'm in Japan. Everyone speaks Japanese. It's probably not, not going to do some weird foreign guy stood 
selling English books out of the back of his car wouldn't look wouldn't look great probably. But um, yeah, I I think that if you if you do live in America, if you do live in you know the UK, I think that's kind of a, a good way to approach it. I think go to the busiest so bus, busiest train station and just sell. Yeah, or try. I mean, I think selling one or two books a day at a place like that is a big yeah, win. definitely. Um, it's funny. I was talking to um, a couple other writers, and we were laughing at this idea of like, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the American rapper Ludacris mm -hmm. who's from the South and him saying, yeah, I sold a million copies of my CD out of the trunk of my car before I ever got a record. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, that's, that's the way we have to do it. Um, just because it's not recorded in the a Amazon algorithm does not mean I didn't sell a book. It does not mean I don't have readers. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I've, I've learned very slowly, but I'm learning it more and more. So I really appreciate you saying mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, I feel as if there's two things I need to ask you about mm. that are, um, I'd be remiss not to ask you about. One is, uh, you're in Japan. How does a North London, uh, kid, you don't have to tell me how you end up in Japan, but I, I think it's seems weird for me not to ask if I can about how sort of the situation around being in Japan and living there for your life. Can I ask that question? Yeah, sure. Uh, basically, um, <laughs> Okay, so this is how it all happened. Okay, basically, I was 23 years old. I was training to be an English teacher. Um, I was wow. doing my my certification to be a high school teacher of English, and uh, I was doing training at a school. My wage was really low. I was really I was really broke all the time. And then one day, I was in the tube in London. I was going up the escalator, and there was a sign. And the first poster said on the sign, if you don't like your life, and then the escalator went up further, the next poster said, change it. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to change my life. I'm not, I'm not happy. So I, I started, um, I was talking to a coworker actually at the school and they said, why don't you teach in China? You know, I did it. You can teach in China for a year. And I thought, well, at the time my girlfriend was she was from london or she was from north wales actually but um her mum was from hong kong her dad was from english uh, she was mixed heritage and uh so we talked about it so we thought okay we're gonna go out to hong kong so we went out to hong kong for a little while uh i got food poisoning i was really sick oh. yeah so uh kind of put me off eating for a little while but i loved hong kong hong kong's amazing but uh, I really wanted to live in South America, Mexico. I wanted to live in Mexico or Argentina. So I was searching really heavily for jobs there. So I applied for a job in Chile. I applied for a job in uh, Mexico. I applied for a, a job in Korea and I applied for a, a job in Japan. Wow. I, got, I got a job in, or well, I got an interview first. They offered me an interview in London. So I went back to London, had an interview my girlfriend at the time had an interview they gave us both jobs we moved to japan um, we were about an hour apart i used to travel every weekend to see her she didn't like it she, we broke up she went home and then i met my ex-wife um we dated then i had 
or we got married. I had two daughters. And then, ah. yes, nine years later, or not nine years later, uh, about nine years later, I got divorced. Uh, we're still best friends. I'm really good friends. And I live five minutes down the road. But basically, okay. because I've got daughters here in Japan, and um, yep. I've got a good job. I love my job here in Japan. And uh, so I'm basically here, here for life. And then I've just met, ah. uh, or three years ago, I just got married actually in November. And uh, ah, yeah, very, very so I got married again. But uh, yeah, I'm in, in Japan until, until I die probably. Yes, oh. because I can't, I can't be away from my daughters. You know, even, sure. you know, I wanted to move to Okinawa where I go. I go very often. I go about four or five times a year. And it's like a tropical island. It's very, very different. It's like Hawaii. And I love hanging around like a place called Chatan, which is uh, the bases are there. The Air Force base is there and the Marine base is there the army base and whatnot. And uh, the atmosphere is amazing because it's a mix of American culture and it's a mix of Japanese culture and it looks like Hawaii oh. so or Spain. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, a really sure. amazing, brilliant place. I wanted to move there, but I can't really go very long without seeing my kids. I've got to see my kids. So for that reason, sure. for that reason, I'm just five minutes down the road and then I see them pretty much every day. Yeah, that's well, that's my you. story. That's... Sorry, that was a really long, a long ass story. Sorry about no. that. No, no, I, I love that. I mean, what was it on the escalator? If you don't like your life. Yeah, which I believe I still believe uh... to this day. And, you know, it really did. That poster changed my life. Yeah. Mm. 17 years now. Wow, yeah. that's fascinating. 17 years. <laughs> and two, two kids. Yeah, so my daughters and... are wow. 13, 13 and 10. They just get oh, into wow. the age now where well, I've they... got a six-year-old boy, so oh yeah, wow, that's... it's still at that. You've got to be that energetic, that energetic stage. My daughters are at the stage now where they're like, don't want to hang around with me too much. I was walking down the street with my daughter the other day, and she actually said, "Papa, I got to go. I got to go for a little while." She crossed over the street and walked on the other side because the kids from school were there. So she's at that kind of uh, that awkward stage, you know. Yeah. That I think we were all at where oh, I don't want to be seen with my dad. That's not cool. Isn't that, fun, isn't that a funny stage yeah. yeah i remember that being in the store going oh my god there's a friend i don't want to be yeah 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 um well one thing that's good about that is i'm hoping you can write a little bit more uh yeah yeah <laughs> and keep keep it going so um well thanks for sharing that i do have one last question for you before we end it it's a funny question i see on twitter every now and then or x i don't know what we're calling it now um <laughs> I'll see that you're a snappy dresser. You like to post a little snappy dresser pic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where'd you get? Where'd you get the the uh, that? Where'd that come from? That's got to be passed down from someone. Well, uh, I guess uh, my 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 father's a, a construction foreman, so it's mm. not so much from my from my father. He was in the military as well. Um, where's where I probably got my OCD from, but um skipping that my grandfather and my great grandfather were you know even my grandfather and my great grandfather even chilling at home even relaxing at home they wore a suit you know a shirt ah. trousers they were really smart guys and then i didn't actually i wasn't like that and then until i came to japan japan is 
very, very much first impression society. And uh, everyone dresses very smartly here. You know, it's, you, you kind of have to look your best. And then I thought, you know, if I'm dressing like this, you know, I'm not sure. I don't just want my Twitter to be constantly about writing. So I wanted to show a little bit myself. I tried to show food. I tried to show uh, dress. I tried to show music. I tried to show things that I'm a little bit, a little bit interested in. So, mm. yes, I tried. I Mm. love it. I love it. Yeah. I love, I love the snappy dresser picks. I mean, I see it and I think that guy definitely writes noir and, um, knows, knows how to, how to pick a suit and wear it. Most of those um, I found at, um, thrift stores. A lot of this stuff. I believe yeah, you. Yeah. So yeah. I love, I love going like nowadays, everything's kind of made really crappily. Right. But if you go to thrift stores, you can find, I found like a, a 100% cashmere camel coat and i got that for like 20 dollars or something and it's i don't think it's ever been worn so yeah it's uh i try to dress to impress on a on a on a budget on a strict budget i've got yeah i've got champagne taste with beer money (laughs) yeah well i'm the same way i have a brindle blazer that I wear to most readings I do and things. And I got it for, I think $5 oh, wow. in a thrift shop. And I agree. Mm. I don't think it was ever worn. It's still in great condition. Mm. So love to see it. Um, I tell you, Steven, it's been a joy to speak to you. We haven't spoken live ever um, for you to meet me uh, all the way from Japan and us to connect. I really appreciate it. No, me too. Um, me too. I love, yeah, yeah. I love shadow, slow dancing and derelict rooms from outcast press. Um, I love what you're doing with punk noir. Keep moving forward. Keep doing it. Um, and I am just super thankful to speak to you. You too. You too. Call you a friend. And uh, yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks a lot, man. Cheers. Thank you. I really appreciate it.